Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Hi, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. Our podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, an ABA provider serving families across the country. I'm your host, Katherine Johnson. I'm thrilled about the guests I have to chat with today, Dr. Stephanie Peterson and Dr. Becky Eldridge, both from Western Michigan. Dr. Peterson is the chair of the Department of Psychology there, and Dr. Eldridge is the clinical director of their Kalamazoo Autism Center. Dr. Eldridge was once a student of Dr. Peterson, and now they are research partners and prolific ones at that. Between the two of them, they already have four publications out in 2020 alone, and each paper is as interesting and important as the last. Today, we're gonna focus on the three papers that they did together, two on functional analysis and one on self-determination. This episode is really a gift to behavior analysts everywhere. Brand new BCBAs are going to get some exposure potentially to some new topics and some pointers on how to follow through with those things. And I think more senior BCBAs will be excited to hear about some of the new directions that these women are taking work in functional analysis in. And they will also get to listen to a great conversation on self-determination, which is a topic we don't get into much in our field. Parents listening are gonna get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain into what we all talk about and nerd out in behavior analysis. And we're really gonna get into the nitty gritty of this research here. There's really something for everyone in this episode and I hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed talking to Dr. Peterson and Dr. Eldridge. Uh, Dr. Peterson, Dr. Eldridge, welcome to the podcast. Um, Before we get into it, I just want to kind of share with you that it was such a pleasure to prepare for this interview because uh, both of you have a body of work that's so extensive. You both have so many interests that are also interesting to me. Uh, So it was kind of fun to pick and choose what we're going to talk about. And second, because your publications are really focused, really elegant, really significant. Um, I'd like to kick this off by talking about two of the papers you've published this year, um, both concerning functional analysis. So we have a lot of parents listening in. So for any non-behavior analysts, I'd kind of like to remind them what a functional analysis is. Uh, Dr. Eldridge, would you like to sort of give a summary for people who are not BCBAs? Sure. And you can call me Becky. Um, Oh, okay. Thank you. So yeah, a functional analysis is a way of identifying the purpose or reason for a problem behavior or any behavior that an individual might exhibit. And so it's kind of, we use the analogy of an allergy test often um, when we're describing a functional analysis to see what environmental factors are agitating the skin. We often prick people's skin with those different allergens to see what their skin reacts to. Very similarly with a functional analysis, we're testing out different things in the environment to see what the individual reacts to. Um, And so by doing that, we can really isolate the triggers for certain problem behaviors and also potentially the reinforcers for those problem behaviors. And once we know what the triggers are and the things that are reinforcing it, we can kind of flip those and use reinforcers to reinforce appropriate behaviors um, and potentially reduce those triggers that might um, trigger a problem behavior. So that's really kind of in layman's terms, what we're doing with the functional analysis is just really trying to figure out, um, why the person is engaging in the problem behavior and how can we use that motivation to encourage good behavior behavior that we want to see. That is such a brilliant analogy. I've never heard that analogy before to describe functional analysis, but it's, it's really perfect. I can't claim it as my own. Um, Stephanie, do you know who originally said it? Uh, I don't. uh, Probably heard it at a conference somewhere along the way and said, that's really good. We're going to steal that. (laughs) Yeah, that speaks to me, truly. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Peterson, could could you sort of like drill down into the details and tell folks kind of what a functional analysis would look like if you decided to do one? 
Yeah, sure. And like Becky, please call me Stephanie. Uh, okay, thanks. So yeah, sure. Um, so when we perform a functional analysis, as Becky said, we are um, trying to identify the conditions under which the problem behavior occurs. And then we're also trying to look at uh, how the child will respond depending on how you react to that problem behavior. So as a result, what we tend to do is set up very specific conditions to try to isolate uh, certain, what we call variables, or um, you might think of as certain elements in the environment that could serve as triggers, like Becky said, or things that we might do following the behavior that might either make it more likely that behavior is going to occur again in the future, under similar conditions or maybe not make the behavior as likely to occur. So um, we often begin by interviewing parents or teachers about the behavior to try to learn a little bit more about what the behavior of concern actually looks like. And when the parents or teachers tend to see it most frequently, we will sometimes do some observations of the child in the natural context of the routine at home or the routine in the classroom to um, sort of see if what we see maps on to what we were told about. And we do that because sometimes um, people perceive things differently. And so they may tell us, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I ignore the problem behavior when it occurs, but when we observe what we actually see is a lot of discussion with the child about the problem behavior and the parent or teacher may sort of perceive that as ignoring, whereas we, we may not perceive that as ignoring. So we mm -hmm. like to sort of observe what's going on in the natural context to map it onto what we learned in the interview. Um, and you know, some people will stop there and say, we're done with our functional behavior assessment, but we will often proceed to a more formal analysis after that because in the natural context of the environment, part of the problem we run into is that there's um, lots of things going on all at the same time and lots of things changing at the same time. So sometimes it's hard to know which of those things was responsible for triggering the problem behavior or possibly rewarding that problem behavior. So um, we'll do the functional analysis that Becky described as kind of like this uh, allergy test where we will set up very specific conditions so we can kind of control the context. Um, so if you'd like, I get like, there's basically four conditions we typically conduct. And if you'd like, I could give an overview of those um, or sure. maybe that's deeper than you wanted me to go. <laughs> no, I think that's great. So I think what you're saying is that we've got these four conditions, each one of them sort of, if, if you see more of the behavior in that condition, it gives you a really good idea of what is reinforcing the behavior which mm -hmm. informs your treatment. Exactly, right. Do you wanna, do you wanna talk about those four conditions? Sure, I can do that. So um, like the first condition we will typically conduct is something we call a free play. And the free play is a condition that we um, expect very little if any problem behavior to occur in. We're trying to set up an environment here that's like what's the perfect environment that should not cause problem behavior. Um, we use this as our control condition against which we're going to compare all the others. So um, we really want to see in the, from the child's perspective, what's sort of the perfect world, right? <laughs> like I shouldn't be motivated to engage in problem behavior during this condition. So mm -hmm. for most children, that looks like I've got preferred toys available to me. I get to do what I want to do with those toys. Nobody's telling me what to do with those toys and I get to have an adult uh, sort of hanging out and attending to what I want them to attend to, like tell me what a great job I'm doing and make play fun, uh, but not, you know, make me play their way. <laughs> so that's generally what our free play looks like. And as I said, ideally we shouldn't see any problem behavior in that condition. Then um, another condition we'll do looks a lot like free play. It's called a contingent attention session and in that condition, we will generally let the child continue to play with toys, but instead of the adult uh, hanging out and playing with the child, the adult will say, I've got to go do some work now uh, and go over and sit in the corner and pretend to read a book or do some work. So their attention is diverted from the child. 
So this is kind of like to simulate that condition at home where the parents like, I gotta go talk on the phone for a few minutes. Um, and invariably, you know, kids start getting into trouble when parents do that, right? <laughs> so we're trying to simulate that kind of environment. And um, as long as the child plays appropriately, we would allow the child to continue to play. If the child engages in whatever the target behavior is the parents have reported as a concern, um, we have the parent go over and attend to the child in some fashion. For example, they might say, you know, like, don't throw toys at your brother. That's not nice. This is how we play. And um, if, as the, if the child starts playing appropriately again, the parent would say, oh, that's nice. Okay, I'm gonna go do some work again now. And the idea here is that um, the, if the problem behavior is motivated by access to attention, we should see when the parent walks away, we should see the problem behavior occur. So it's like that allergy test Becky was referring to, right? We just sort of gave the child a little dose of the thing they don't like, which is parental tension being diverted. We should see an increase in the problem behavior. When the parent comes over to attend, we should sort of see that problem behavior subside because now they've gotten what they were motivated to get. And then when the parent walks away again, we should see the behavior occur again. And so we try to do that multiple times to see if we see that kind of, uh, you know, every time the parent walks away, we see the challenging behavior. Every time the parent comes back, it kind of goes down. So we'll look to see if, if that reliably occurs. So if you've got these four conditions and you're testing out, you're testing all of these conditions and you're seeing that the majority of the behavior the challenging behavior is happening in that attention condition, what does that tell you? So if that's what we see, like that's the only condition where we see the target behavior occurring, we will generally conclude from, from that that the challenging behavior is motivated by access to parental attention. And so that will drive our treatment recommendations and we will typically work with the parent to say, okay, a couple of things have to happen here. It, first of all, it's okay for your child to want your attention. In fact, that's a really awesome thing that your child wants your attention. Uh, it would not be good if your child didn't want your attention, right? We want kids to want their parents' attention. So that's good. The motivation is not bad. Uh, the way the child is accessing the attention is maybe not so desirable. So our task at that point is to say to the parent, let's work on teaching that child a more appropriate way to get your attention. Um, for many children who, with whom we work, they don't have really great language skills. So they don't know how to say, mom, come here, play with me. And because they don't have a lot of vocal language skills, perhaps. So we might teach them um, to sign mom or to, to say mom, but often we are ending up with sort of um, substitutes for vocal verbal behavior like a sign or a picture card or something like that that the child could hand the parent and then contingent upon them doing that we teach the parent to uh, respond with enthusiastic fun attention so the child is getting what they want for that more appropriate response and at the same time we have to teach parents to minimize their attention for the problem behavior. Um, ideally, they would completely ignore or remove their attention for that problem behavior. However, we run into some situations where the problem behavior is pretty dangerous and it's not wise for the parent to uh, completely ignore it. So we at least ask them to make it as neutral and brief as possible when the problem behavior occurs. So one of your papers was looking at training new behavior analysts to do FAs. And the other one that we're talking about today was about developing a risk assessment tool that clinicians can use before doing a functional analysis. So I'm seeing as the common thread here is that you're working really hard to make sure that new behavior analysts know how to do functional analysis and are doing functional analysis correctly and safely. So I'd like to get into the specifics of the studies, but first I was wondering if you could highlight for our listeners some of the big picture trends in our field right now that are inspiring you to address these issues. And Stephanie, I know you have been the board of directors on the BACB for six years. And so I'm sure in your work there, as well as your work at Western Michigan, 
uh, you're you're sort of seeing a need for these things. Can you speak to that? Um, yeah, and then I'll let Becky speak to it too, because she's really on the front lines uh, at our center training uh, students to do these things and overseeing the actual implementation in a lot of situations. But yeah, I mean, one of the major responsibilities of the BACB is for consumer protection and to make sure that um, the people who are certified to provide services to individual are doing a good job of providing those services and are not only keeping the children with whom they're working with safe, but they're also providing highly effective services at the same time. And, you know, so one of the roles of the board is to oversee that and if people are complaining because they don't think um, a specific provider is doing that, the board will hear hear those complaints and decide what to do about it. So, um, you know, but by the time complaints reach that level, they're pretty significant often. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, our philosophy is, first of all, let's avoid that from occurring by really training people well so that they aren't making those kinds of mistakes. And then secondly, how can we provide support for people who feel like they need more development in those areas, again, to avoid those problems from occurring in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, and then I can let, I guess, Becky speak to, in her role as a clinical director, you know, she's responsible for overseeing behavior analysts who are implementing these things. So maybe she can speak more to that. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's been a an exponential growth in the field of behavior analysis in the last five years. Um, and, you know, if you go on the BACB's website, you can see that the majority of those people have been certified for five years or less um, of the Wild. total <laughs> population certified. And so yeah. we have a, you know, it's great that our field is growing um, because that means we can serve more clients and help more people. But that does create some unique challenges as far as that we have a very young workforce mm -hmm. um, and a very inexperienced workforce at that. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the things that I've learned through, you know, through different jobs, through graduate school about functional analysis has been through experience. And so when we look at our more, you know, more experienced behavior analysts, um, a lot of their behavior is shaped by the experiences that they've had. And when you bring in a whole new group of people who don't have that level of experience, they're really relying on their coursework and, and kind of what we call rules. And in behavior analysis, we talk about rule-governed behavior versus mm -hmm. contingency, contingency shaped, excuse me. And that rule-governed behavior really means if I'm taught how to do something, I'm taught a rule, I'm gonna do that. Um, and then with contingency shaped behavior, it means that my experiences are, are shaping how I behave. And so when we look at novice or new behavior analysts, they're mostly rule governed. And the a lot of people, the exposure that they've gotten to functional analysis in graduate school has been the Hallmark Iwata article with the four standard conditions. And they're implementing these FAs following this very rule governed uh, set mm -hmm. of procedures which is okay, but as Stephanie mentioned when she's talking about, you know, the nuances and those contextual variables with functional analysis, it can't always go by, you know, this is the specific way you're going to run it. You have to do that groundwork of interviewing your families, doing some observation, and really design those test conditions to identify those contextual variables or those idiosyncratic variables that may be different for every family. Um, in her example of the child who's, you know, engaging in problem behavior to get mom's attention, um, it may look very different. Like it may be a single mom with a single child and she, she can hang up the phone and give the attention. But what happens when we have the mom who's got four other kids and working three yeah. jobs and is also the sole caregiver? her, she can't give up her attention. And so our conditions and our treatment has to look different. And so the impetus for both of those studies that we talked about was not only to train um, social workers and junior behavior analysts or even behavior analysts who were um, not yet certified, but working towards their experience hours was to really train them in those nuances of decision-making with how to design different conditions um, and how to implement them effectively. So in the first article, um, we did remote training to train a group of people. And then we wanted to see if they could generalize those skills to actual clients. And they did, which was great. 
um, in the second article about the risk assessment, um, it's really trying to give um, there's so many different types of functional analyses out there. Um, you can run a standard FA, you can run a brief functional analysis, you can run a latency, um, and, and, and those are all technical terms, but, um, you know, similar to, like, we'll go back to the analogy of the allergy test. Um, let's say that you do have an individual who comes up and they're allergic to grass. Well, maybe they can't avoid grass their whole life because it's in their backyard, it's in their front yard, it's everywhere that they go. And so they can't avoid it. And they've got a couple options for treatment. They can either, you know, take a, an anti-inflammatory or an anti-allergy um, pill. Maybe they can get shots, maybe they can get injections. And so there's different treatments and, and you would allow the individual to select those different treatments based on their context. When we're training behavior analysts, we have to do the same thing. We have to train them to select different assessments based on the context that they're in. And so that risk assessment tool is really to help those novice behavior analysts who don't have the experience with different contexts to help them select what functional analysis might be the safest given the context mm -hmm. that they're describing. Um, so that's kind of how we look at training. We want to train the foundational skills, but we also want to train them to make good clinical decisions. And clinical decision making is hard um, and it takes experience, but that risk assessment tool that we developed hopefully can help clinicians um, look at those different contextual variables to make better, safer decisions. I absolutely loved reading that article. It took me back to, so I, I graduated um, from graduate school in the 90s. We certainly did not have any resources like this. You know, our the resources that I used were calling my old professors and speaking to other behavior analysts. We didn't even have the BACB quite yet. Mm -hmm. And so to just imagine these young behavior analysts graduating and having a tool like this just makes my heart happy. Can you tell us a little bit more in detail about the tool itself? Sure. Um, so the tool itself looks at, you know, when we're looking at assessing problem behavior, um, there's four major players when we think about like what assessment we're going to do. Um, the first one is behavioral intensity or severity. So um, we're looking at a variety of different behaviors, all the way from some minor whining or non-compliance, all the way up to, you know, severe self-injury that's going to cause permanent damage um, to the individual or other individuals. And so we have to take each of those levels of behavioral severity into consideration when we're selecting our assessments. As Stephanie mentioned when she was describing the functional analysis, we are triggering problem behavior. And so we may see a temporary increase in that problem behavior. And so we want to really make sure that we can keep it safe so that behavioral intensity is really important to consider um, the different levels. Do you think that that's potentially one of the reasons that behavior analysts kind of, especially new behavior analysts kind of shy away from functional analysis? Because it, it's scary. You're actually, you know, encouraging them to engage in a behavior that the family wants to get rid of that you as a behavior analyst have targeted for a decrease, you know, some, it's obviously going to be something that's, you know, not healthy or good for them to be doing. And you have to, you're putting them in a position of, of increasing it. And it's scary. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a study that came out in 2015 by Oliver Pratt and Norman that we quote quite a bit. It was a survey of behavior analysts. Why don't they use FA in their practice? And, you know, they talked about several barriers, but one of those while most behavior analysts in that study did agree that functional analysis was the most efficient and the most effective way to identify function, um, they often didn't use it. Uh, they didn't cite their own fear. They cited fear from stakeholders. So families, mm -hmm. administration, teachers. Um, and I, I would guess I, you know, the data is, is a little unclear, um, but I would guess that people are afraid to not only trigger or increase that problem behavior, but also exactly like you're saying for families, you know, teachers, other caregivers, other stakeholders to see here I am as the behavior analyst trying to reduce problem behavior and I'm going to increase it. Mm -hmm. But I think the big thing to remember is that that's a temporary increase. Right. It, typically goes back down and you can do it in a safe way, just like the allergy test and the long-term goal of it 
um, and the long-term benefits often outweigh that small risk. And so that's what the risk assessment tool is really designed to look at is we have these four domains of risk and does the benefit of identifying a really effective treatment that can be used for the long run outweigh the potential risks within those four domains. So um, that's kind of the, the impetus or the the purpose of that is to really help those junior level behavior analysts navigate through risk and see if the benefit does outweigh. It doesn't always, um, but yeah, it's, it's really to help decide that. You know, with a, what's interesting is that although behavior analysts will report some of those stakeholders are saying, this feels really uncomfortable to trigger the problem behavior. Like I get that a lot from principals, for example, when we're describing yeah. what we're wanting to do, they'll be like, what? You're going to do what in my mm-hmm. school? <laughs> um, but like you, I graduated from graduate school in the 90s. Um, and one of the things that I did during my graduate training was work in an outpatient clinic with my major professor where we assessed problem behavior. And I'll tell you that many of the parents, when they came in for the evaluation, they wanted us to see the problem behavior because yeah. like sort of, I like, I liken this to taking your car in because it's making that funny noise. And then mm-hmm. the guy drives it around town and he's like, like, I don't hear it. What are you, some kind of crazy person? <laughs> you know? I swear it was just there. I right. swear and my kid get, does this. Right. And then you get in the car and drive it home and there goes that sound again. Um, mm-hmm. Like, uh, so we had lots of parents say, you know, I want you to see it. So when we would describe what we were going to do, uh, the parents would say, great, this is great. And they would stand behind the glass and watch us conduct the analysis. Or sometimes we had them conducted, it depended on the situation. But um, when they would see their child engaging in the problem behavior, just like they would do at home with them, they would say, uh, yes, that's it. That's what I see. Do you see what mm-hmm. I'm talking about now? And mm-hmm. we would be like, yeah, this is great. And it's so helpful for us to see it because seeing it really helps us see that context and helps us to design that intervention. So I think sometimes, and this may, this may go into like uh, the second factor, one of the other factors we look at with that risk assessment tool is what's your level of training as a behavior Mm -hmm. analyst. So, you know, if you're a brand new behavior analyst who hasn't done a lot of functional analyses in your career, you may be more gun shy about doing it because you may not feel you have the competency to deal with the severity of the target behavior. So uh, one of the things that we thought was really important with this risk assessment tool is to look at how these four factors that we're talking about, we've only talked about two so far, one being the severity of the behavior and another being your level of training as a behavior analyst, like these two things interact with each other, right? Right. Um, so if the behavior is more intense, it's probably more important that you have a lot of training right. um, before you conduct that functional analysis, where if we're talking about some pretty minor off-task behavior that your child is displaying, you know, it's probably a more novice behavior analyst could do that assessment without a lot mm-hmm. of risk because the behavior itself isn't going to produce a lot of injury to anybody. So um I know earlier, Catherine, you said that your approach was to always call on your major professors and ask for guidance mm-hmm. and advice. And, and I heard you say it sort of like, yeah, that's kind of how we used to do things. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't have had to do that. But I would say that's exactly what you should have done, right? <laughs> it's like, that's, oh, yeah, uh, that was the only thing available at the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and in many ways, it's still the only thing available to people. Yes, and it's, it's one true. of the first courses of action that we would tell a more right. junior behavior analyst is first right. of all, it's it's very self-actualized to realize I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm not competent mm-hmm. enough to do this. Like that's a really important skill for a behavior analyst to have. And mm-hmm. so for a behavior analyst to say, I need consultation here is mm-hmm. a really awesome skill for them to possess. And one of the things that our tool would suggest is like if if the target behavior is very intense, but your level of sophistication on doing behavior analysts is very low, the first thing you should be doing is seeking consultation from somebody who's more experienced to help sort of bring that risk factor down a bit, right? It's much less risky if you've got a highly competent person helping you with this. Right. So what are these four domains that you're looking at within your risk assessment? Mm -hmm. 
So one, one is the severity of the target behavior. One is mm -hmm. the level of training of the behavior analyst. And then Becky, you want to talk about the other two? Yeah. So the third one is the environment in which you're conducting the FA in. So do you have, um, a room full of breakable items or, you know, are we doing this mm -hmm. in the child's living room where, you know, there's grandma's collectible figurines or, you know, in a curio cabinet, or are we doing this in a living room that's app, you know, just has a couch and a chair and some, you know, cushy things. And so the environment definitely plays into it, especially with that severity, it interacts with that. The more severe the problem behavior might result in property destruction or aggression mm -hmm. or self-injury, we want to take that environment into, into consideration. And then the last uh, domain is how many support staff do you have mm -hmm. and what is the training of that support staff? So um, for some of our more severe functional analyses that we run, um, we do recommend having a nurse present who can call termination, like, hey, this is our termination criteria. If this happens, we're done with the assessment um, mm -hmm. so that we don't put the individual in harm's way. Um, you know, all the way to do you have staff trained in safety management procedures or crisis intervention uh, procedures, um, or do you just have a brand new behavior tech with you who's never done this either. And that would definitely change things as well. So when we look at how many support staff do you have, what the environment is, what the severity of the behavior is, and then what your personal training is, those four domains all interact together to produce a certain level of risk. Um, and I think the nice thing about the tool is it then gives you ways to reduce the risk. And that could be either by conducting an alternative type of assessment um, or by going back and seeking more help or going back to your mentors or your advisors and saying, hey, I've got this tough case. Um, and I think the more that behavior analysis kind of merges into the medical field, you know, we now have um, autism coverage in all 50 states, uh, yeah. for which is great. Um, the more that we go into the medical field, the more we can start to look at the medical model for, they've been around for a lot longer than behavior analysis has. And what do they yeah. do? Right. If I'm a general practitioner and I've got a kid who comes in for something going on in their ear, I may refer them to an ear, nose and throat doctor. And so the same thing would hold true for behavior analysis. If I am, you know, a junior behavior analyst with not a lot of experience with severe behavior and I get that child into my office, I need to refer them to somebody who does or seek supervision and consultation from someone who has more experience with that. There are even cases like here in Michigan where I live that I've been asked to consult on and, you know, I'm fairly experienced, but, uh, but I don't have facilities sometimes to do the kind of analysis that needs to be done. Um, and I will maybe refer them to Kennedy Krieger uh, at Johns Hopkins University because they have facilities like an inpatient facility where they can get medical consultation and they have safe padded rooms that they can do these analyses in. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, even very experienced people are, are going to say like, I may not have the environment in which I can do that analysis and need to refer elsewhere. This tool is incredibly useful. Uh, I would say it's socially significant for the behavior analysts who are learning to do FAs, but also by extension, of course, their clients are going to receive better care as a result. Um, and so Becky, I know that your one of your great interests is decision-making behavior of behavior analysts. And so, you know, this, this tool that you've created is critical for new behavior analysts. I'm wondering what other types of tools do you think that we need to develop in our field? That's interesting you bring that up, Catherine, because I I think decision-making is a behavior that, uh, you know, like any, like behavior analysts, we will analyze any behavior we can get our hands on. And decision-making is one of those behaviors. Um, and so I, I do think it's interesting. But a interesting. complex one, a complex so one that complex. I don't think many people are confident enough to take on. So I love that that's one of your primary interests. Um, it's so complex. And I think from a behavior analytic perspective, it's complex because it involves both what we call covert behaviors or, or thoughts, hidden behaviors that other people don't have access to, but also those overt behaviors or those things that are observable that other people do have access to. So, you know, if I'm doing an assessment and I write a treatment, the things that people have access to are my assessment results and my written treatment plan. 
they don't have access to all of the thoughts that went through my head to, in order yeah. to get to that treatment, to select that treatment. So there are some decision tools out there. Um, you know, there's a couple in the research for, you know, selecting treatments for attention, maintain problem behavior for escape, maintain problem behavior. There's mm -hmm. another decision tool on what measurement, you know, you should use when you're um, working with clients. I think the challenge with decision-making tools is, and ours included with the risk assessment is number one, the whole point of the tool is to have an impact on decision-making behavior. And so mm -hmm. one thing that none of these tools have is any sort of validation that it actually changes decision-making behavior. And then it also doesn't have the second type of validation that we talk about in that does, is this actually what people think when they're making these decisions. Right. And so we sent our tool out for two rounds of expert review to make sure that the, the way in which we came up with decisions mapped on to how, how experts in the field who work with individuals with challenging behavior and functional analysis, that the same decision path that they would take. Um, I love that. But it wasn't perfect and it hasn't, we haven't sent it out for any sort of, you know, um, randomized control study to see if it actually does map on and then actually if it does change decision-making behavior. So I think that's a big area that behavior analysts, especially as we grow as a field, really need to tackle is how are we training our junior folks on how to make good decisions um, and how do we measure that? So I think those are two big areas that as a field, we haven't yet, there's a lot of room for research there. You answered my question before I was gonna before I even got a chance to ask it. I was gonna say, how are you going to measure the efficacy? What's your dependent variable gonna be? I want to know. Yeah, we're so, we're just starting to have. Well, I wouldn't say we're just starting. We've been having those conversations for a little while, and I have a, a current student who's really interested in trying to take that on. So we're in the process nice. of working together. Um, Becky and I are working with that student of mine, and we're also uh, collaborating with some folks at some other institutions because it's such a complex skill. We feel like we mm -hmm. need input from a variety of people on this study, but we have some thoughts about how we're going to do that. They're not entirely solidified yet, but hopefully soon, you know, maybe in the next year or two, you'll see that come out. <laughs> Great. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, moving on to the next study, uh, you used behavioral skills training good old BST, to train people how to complete a functional analysis, but this is the kicker, you did it remotely. Mm -hmm. So Becky, tell us about this. So um, this was when I was in graduate school in Stephanie's lab and um, my friends, uh, Dr. Denise Rios and Dr. Yannick Schenk, um, we read this study where they had used remote behavioral skills training to train functional analyses somewhat unsuccessfully. And wow. we thought, what were the conditions under which they weren't successful? Why? And can we, can we do this? Because all of us are very passionate about functional analysis. And I mean, we sometimes have parents implement FA procedures. So, you know, it's gotta be something we can train. And, um, Stephanie comes from a long line of using telehealth uh, in behavior analysis. And so we thought we can do this. We just have to figure it out. Um, and so we really started this study. It ended up being uh, Dr. Rios's thesis, but we, we did it initially just for fun. Um, it was one of those things behavior that we Behavior analytic fun. Um, it was a wild it, Friday night. It was a while, a while. It was so, it and honestly, it, it was so much fun. Um, we designed these simulated clients and everything was, was done remotely. So we first um, pretended we were the client. We had scripts so that we could control how many instances of problem behavior we would engage in, how many instances of appropriate behavior across different conditions. And we randomized those uh, scripts across the conditions for all of our participants and really trained them up to mastery just by role-playing essentially. Mm -hmm. um, using BST. So we gave them the instructions, we modeled it, and then we rehearsed it to mastery. I think the coolest thing about that study is that we then extended it 
to actual clients. So all of our participants in that study, um, we then helped them run an FA with an actual client. Um, and I believe um, that study was a while ago, but eight out of the 10 did meet mastery with their actual clients and two were actually able to implement conditions that we had not trained. So some um, atypical FA conditions mm -hmm. based on that client's context that we had not trained at a mastery level. Um, yeah. So that was like really cool to see. Another cool thing, I, I would say two other cool things about that study. One was that um, we also didn't train them how to evaluate aggression with those analyses because um, in our case, the, the pretend client was not in the same room with the therapist who was practicing. The pretend client yeah. was with us actually. And so it was kind of hard to simulate aggression because they weren't in the same place together. And yet our the people we trained um, generalized, not only were they able to go do this with a real client, they were able to do it with clients who displayed challenging behaviors that we didn't train them in. So they actually had some who displayed aggression. And um, that relates to the other thing that I think was cool about this study. In the study that Becky said they read and and it wasn't as successful as everybody'd hoped, um, the, the uh, we call it a confederate, uh, which would be the, the simulated client. The person was, pretending to be the person with who's displaying the challenging behavior. Right. Um, what they had done in that other study was hired an actor at the site where the person mm -hmm. being trained was. So the person being trained was in the same room with this confederate or simulated client, uh, which we thought could be a barrier to this kind of training because it's not always easy to find somebody who can do that in yeah. those remote places. So we were like, could could our Confederate client be here with us? And so their training is actually occurring through the computer as they're interacting wow. with this uh, simulated client. So we actually had an undergraduate student here at Western who was um, like a theater major and uh, he pretended to be the client and it was totally all through the screen. And I thought it was pretty amazing that they could learn these skills when they weren't even in the same room with the, with the pretend client. So. I think Becky and Yannick and Denise just did a fantastic job in de designing that study and executing it. And for me as the faculty mentor, it was super fun to mentor that project, you know, from them coming in here and saying, we wanna do this and me going, okay, so come back next week and tell me, like, bring me the plan for how you're gonna do it. And having them come back every week and watch the study evolve, it was just really fun to do. That is fascinating that you can do the rehearsal and feedback parts of BST where the client is actually just, you know, somewhere else, but you're interacting with them through the computer screen. I love that. I wanted to just comment on your results for a minute because what struck me was that, first of all, your data are beautiful. You can really see the power of BST and your, you know, the way that you designed things. It creates this model in which the actual clients are not being exposed to their behavior analysts learning curve. They are, by the time they get to their actual clients, they are spot on. And I just, I don't know, if you look at the data as well, it's just, you know, exactly what you, I'm sure exactly what you were hoping for um, when you put together the study, because it's, it's just beautiful. I did laugh a little bit at the participant who mentioned that they didn't like participating in the baseline because who likes participating in a baseline? Yeah. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody. Necessary for functional, you know, to show functional control. Yes, fun, not so much. Yeah, I think um, that that was true, um, you know, cause we did just give them the method section from the Iwata et al article and the day et al article. Um, and so we just, gave them those methods and we're like, here, run with it. And I think what we were really trying to capture was that's how a lot of behavior analysts do learn new procedures is they're staying in touch with the research and they're reading it and they're trying to replicate it. And I think, um, you know, those articles are so descriptive and so specific, yeah. but it shows that instructions alone, I mean, they were only effective for one of our participants, um, instructions alone. And so 90% of the people are going to need a little bit more than that. Um, 
And so that hadn't it, occurred to me that your baseline is actually how most new behavior analysts are practicing with yep. that level of fidelity, which was not high. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. I, I loved Catherine, what you said about the, um, you know, getting all the, the errors out on a practice client, not on a real client. I think that that's huge. And it really yeah. does. It allows for some safety um, within our training, but it, it also allows for some assurity when you do actually get to a client um, because mm -hmm. you've already gone through a little bit of that, you know, oh, am I doing this right? Is this, you know, a little bit of that adrenaline or nervousness um, and practiced being calm in spite of it. And so right. I think that's, you know, it's definitely a skill when we're doing, anytime we can do BST with simulations or role plays, I think it's really helpful because, you know, you, especially with something as significant as functional analysis, you don't, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want the mistake in the actual assessment. So you want it to happen in practice. And I think that like, there's so many cool things about this study, but another, you know, cool thing was it took, it was on average less than an hour to get participants up to mastery. So it doesn't take a ton of time. I think people also think like BST is so difficult mm -hmm. and so time consuming. Um, but I think people spend more time probably complaining about it, <laughs> actually mm -hmm. doing it, um, and mm -hmm. just getting it, getting it done. Cause our participants reached, reached mastery pretty quickly. Yeah, and I think uh, I think one of the things they really dislike about baseline is the lack of feedback that they yeah. get. Because I think that they're aware they're they may be aware they're making mistakes. They're certainly aware that they aren't confident that they're mm -hmm. running it correctly, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it bugs them to be performing it in front of us and not getting feedback. <laughs> and um, for the study that we based this study on, I think that was the one piece of BST that we felt like. Um, you know, the, in, in the prior study, what they had done, which is very legitimate and is done a lot in training is, um, you know, ask people to practice, but they were doing a large group training and doing behavioral skills training in a large group is challenging because when you have people practice in dyads, for example, um, and you, there's one trainer and 30 people being trained, it's hard for you to give feedback to everybody, right? And that was one of our major hypotheses about why they struggled to produce the results that we all hoped they would produce. Uh, it was our hypothesis that people didn't get enough feedback. And mm -hmm. so our study was more one-on-one -on -one training and people got that direct feedback. But like Becky said, um, you know, it, it didn't take that long to do, to do it individually. So we may be better off just doing individual training one-on-one -on -one than doing those large group trainings, if, especially if you're doing BST. Stephanie and Becky, I'm going to say something to you that behavior analysts rarely say to one another. Can we talk about self-determination? <laughs> Absolutely. That's why we wrote yes. that article, because behavior <laughs> analysts don't want to talk about that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So so first of all, for, for folks who are listening who do not know what self-determination is, um, could one of you give just a short synopsis of what it means in the world? and then what it means as a behavior analyst. So as, as somebody who's worked in the field of disability for well over 25 years, um, and especially somebody who came up through the field during the 80s and 90s, when self-determination sort of became a buzzword in, in the area of just disability in general. And the idea behind self-determination is that, you know, uh, for the three of us on this call, you know, we get up every day and make a ton of decisions about our lives, many of them very small. Like, mm -hmm. what am I going to wear today? What am I going to eat for breakfast today? Uh, what am I going to have for lunch today? How am I going to schedule my work day? You know, we make yeah. a ton of little decisions all day long that uh, really impact how our lives are lived. And so many would say we live very self-determined lives because we get to make those kinds of decisions. Many young people and adults with developmental disabilities don't get the opportunity to make some of those decisions every day. They may, there may be some 
adults who live in group homes who are told this is what we're having for breakfast today and this is what you're going to wear today and here's what your schedule looks like today and sorry you can't go get McDonald's for lunch because we don't have a staff member who can drive you there. Um, and so the idea is how do we create a context where individuals who have disabilities get to live the most self-determined life possible. Um, and behavior analysts don't talk about this very much because self-determination is this sort of big concept that maybe doesn't fit within our um, scheme of how we right. define things. It's, and it's hard to nail down what that definition is. And mm -hmm. maybe it's kind of like trying to nail jello to a wall. It's, it's hard to really know exactly what it is. Um, so with this paper, we tried to look at, could we come up with a definition of self-determination that's conceptually systematic mm -hmm. with a behavior analytic viewpoint? And I think that that's important to do because as behavior analysts, we are often part of a larger team that is working to plan um, interventions and support plans for individuals with developmental disabilities. And people coming from other disciplines are coming to the table wanting to talk about self-determination. Yeah. We need to be part of that conversation, right? And we can't just step away from that table and say, well, that's not a behavior analytic concept. So I'm not gonna take part in that. And what that means then is we're not at the table to be part of the solution for that individual, so. Yeah, and I think a lot of it could be fear because again, you know, especially, uh, folks who are sort of new to the field talking about these concepts that are assuming that someone has an internal life and describing private events or talking about um, you know something like a private event being a reinforcer for instance making a choice being a reinforcer for someone mm -hmm. um, I think it's just not part of the conversation yeah and I also think that you know, so we tend to look at a lot of self-determination as, you know, self-management, self-control, mm -hmm. which are which are all very um, much conceptually systematic with the idea of self-determination. But if you look at our behavior analytic literature, many of the studies that are done on self-management, for example, um, have a teacher designing and implementing the self-management system so that the child can be self-managed. And the argument I made, it was, we were at a conference and I was serving as discussant for a bunch of papers on self-management. And I was like, these are really great because they're producing some really nice self-managed skills for the kids. But ultimately, if the kids can't design the self-management system and they're relying on a teacher or a parent or a caregiver of some sort to implement that self-management strategy, are they really self-managed, right? Right. <laughs> so it was, it's sort of like trying to get behavior analysts to think about how do we teach the individuals we work with to design those systems for themselves. And that's an area mm -hmm. of research that, I mean, if we have even scratched the surface it's hard to find that scratch because I don't think we've really addressed it adequately. And it's just wide open for somebody who wants to do work in that area. So I got my degree, as I said, uh, in the nineties at Columbia Teachers College, where we actually had a required course, like an entire course in self-determination. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't taught with a behavioral lens, through a behavioral lens, if I remember correctly, but it definitely shaped my understanding of the obligations that I had to my clients and really informed my view of what I was doing when I was selecting goals for my clients. I feel really um, grateful that I had that background. Where do you think we are now with the education of our new behavior analysts with regard to self-determination? I think that's a good question. Um, I guess my thoughts on that would be that we talk a lot about um, you know, consent and assent, meaning a minor is giving mm -hmm. consent. Um, and sometimes we talk about preference. And I think that might be the 
the limit of what we talk about when we talk about Mm -hmm. self-determination. As Stephanie mentioned, most of our research on like self-control. So when behavior analysts talk about self-control, they, they mean that the individual has chosen the larger delayed reinforcement, um, as opposed to the immediate or smaller reinforcement. Um, so I might choose to, you know, forego the rhesus uh, pumpkin in efforts to um, have a healthier, you know, eating habits this week, which might result in a pound of weight loss this week. Like that would be a self-controlled choice, but Mm -hmm. so much of our research on self-control is not self-control. It's arranging the environment to make that larger, later reinforcer more appealing uh, to the mm-hmm. individual. So it's still managed mm-hmm. by somebody else. And even mm-hmm. in you know self-management, it's an adult or an authority figure giving a child a self-management checklist and saying, oh, they're self-managed, but they didn't create that checklist. They're not doing anything to maintain its use. Um, and so when we talk about self-determination, it's really taking our clients' um, wishes and desires and goals into into consideration. I think um, one thing that I think applied uh, behavior analysts working with kids are starting to get more into is ACT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is really looking at, you know, value-based decision-making and with Mm -hmm. their clients. it's not something that's taught at most universities. And it's, it's, um, it's also something that we get uncomfortable with talking about private events and thoughts yeah. as behavior and how do we analyze that. And so with this whole self-determination conversation, especially, you know, working with individuals with developmental disabilities, we've got to do better. We have to get to the mm-hmm. table to talk about these things because otherwise we're not really producing socially significant results because our, our individuals are always going to rely on us in care. Um, and the whole goal Mm -hmm. is to get them to, to work ourselves out of a job that they Mm -hmm. shouldn't rely on us always. And so we need, like, as Stephanie said, to be at the table, to, um, help our, our clients and our consumers get to the point where they can make that choice for themselves. So I have to tell you, as I was reading this article and, and I, one of my thoughts was, we should do an entire podcast on self-determination. And one of my other thoughts was, you know, you go into an IEP meeting or you sit down and discuss what's gonna go into a treatment plan. You always have a communication goal. You almost always have a fine motor goal. Is this something as a field that we need to say, listen, this is an entire domain that is critical to the people that we serve. And this is something that we should always be looking at. Yeah, I think that there's some, it's not a bad idea. And certainly when individuals get older um, and start thinking about transition planning and so on, some of that's already probably occurring because there are some uh, transition goals and things Mm -hmm. like that that go into IEPs, for example. Um, My thing has always been, we need to start thinking about it way earlier than that. Like, um, because a lot of the skills we're talking about are things that need to start developing even when children are only three and four years old, you know, right. teaching them to wait for the bigger, better reinforcer instead of choosing that more immediate reinforcer. Like we can start working on things like that when children are small and those are like the prerequisite skills they're going to need for these skills later in life. And I, so I think we start thinking about it too late Mm-hmm. Um, we should think about it sooner. And I don't know, maybe one of the reasons we think about it too late is because we have this attitude that that's not a behavior analytic, like, approach or skill set. Um, and I think that as behavior analysts, so like, I don't, this is just my bias, this is not based on data or anything. But I think that sometimes we don't have enough humility about, mm-hmm. like, we don't, we really don't have every know everything we need to know in all these different areas. And that when I walk into an IEP team meeting with all these other disciplines, um, like social work, like OT, PT, and who are bringing, maybe bring some of these questions to the table and they're uncomfortable for us because we don't have a solid basis of research on which we can say, yes, here's how we do that. Mm -hmm. I think we have to have some humility of saying, we don't know everything we're doing there. 
and rely on some of those other fields to help us and be okay with asking for help on those things. Um, and also looking for the areas of convergence where we're all coming to the table saying we agree on these things and that others at the table may not conceptualize self-determination in the same way we do as behavior analysts, but saying, where are the points of convergence and let's work from there. This is what we agree on. We all agree this is important. We may have different ways of working on those skills and that's okay. Um, we'll do our part, let them do their part, right? Um, so yeah, I would love to see people have more therapeutic goals either on their IEPs or in the plans that behavior analysts are writing in their centers that focus mm -hmm. on things like choice and self-management and self-determination, if we want to call it that, right? I think it also goes back to our, you know, as a field, we ground ourselves in our seven dimensions. And one thing mm -hmm. I really try and train our new, um, our master's students who are seeking certification, and then also our current BCBAs here at the center is, we should really be thinking about those seven dimensions throughout our entire treatment plan. And yes. I think the most significant one that relates to self-determination is that applied dimension. And does it have mm -hmm. that socially significant impact on the individual and society? And so really thinking about that, um, I think too often, you know, we talked about decision-making earlier in the episode or the podcast, um, but when when we talk about decision-making for behavior analysts, sometimes it is too manualized and we're selecting this goal because it's not filled in on the VB map, but behavior analysts should be able to say why they're selecting this goal in the larger socially significant context. And so while it may be a communication goal or we're teaching a choice goal, why is it important for them to know choice so that they can become a self-determined individual? Um, and so I think, you know, as a field, our, our practitioners need a little bit more training in how to talk about and select goals and talk about why they selected them in the context of this individual as a whole, rather than this is a missing, you know, spot on my grid that I need to fill in. Um, so, you know, I know that behavior analysts, they can say it a lot of times when we're in meetings, but I don't hear it a lot in treatment planning meetings. And I think that's really important that we start to say that so that, you know, we are addressing that, that whole person and we are looking for those points of convergence with other professionals, because at the end of the day, all of us are here for that person. Um, and so, you know, when we get into those sticky situations where we're fighting for this goal or that goal, really, why are we fighting for that goal? And it's for, it should always lead back to what's gonna have the most significant impact for this individual. And Catherine, did I hear you say you went to Columbia? I did. Yeah, so so you were trained as a teacher then? Yes. Yeah, and so was I. Uh, my training oh. was as a special education teacher too. And so um, I, do, I do think that people who have some training from a, an education or special education background uh, may be more likely to have some training in the context of self-determination than people who are trained in some other areas. And mm -hmm. so as a field, maybe that's something that should be part of our conversation. I, I struggle with as like a department chair and a program leader and things like that. Like there's so much our students need to know. Oh, and so true. <laughs> like if I required them to take all the classes, they'd never get out of here. But mm -hmm. um, it, it really causes some points for me to sit back and reflect on what are the really important and critical skills our students need to be learning and are we doing them a disservice by not giving them more background in, in concepts like self-determination and how we approach that. It's like you, I, I don't remember if I had a full entire course on it, but it was certainly a big part of in my graduate training um, in the area of severe disabilities. Sue Hammer Natupski was one of the professors that I had. It was a big deal for her was self-determination and it was a thread through several of my courses with her. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, I feel so lucky to have that that background. Mm -hmm. So necessary. And I think, you know, you're right, there's so much that behavior analysts need to know. You could, you know, design a 60 credit 
program, 150 credit program, and maybe not get everything mm -hmm. in. But you know, what are some ways that we can sort of help dissemination of these concepts in our field? I mean, personally, I think this article is fantastic. I think it should be required reading for all graduate students. I will tell everyone who, who will listen well, that I think you. that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really an honor. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to thank you both for spending so much time with me today. Uh, I really think your work on functional analysis and self-determination are significant. I think that these papers are going to be impactful. And I learned a lot from reading them. And it's also just really kind of giving me some hope for the future of our field and for young behavior analysts um, to see researchers like yourselves really invested in innovating to meet the challenge that we're all facing of having so many new behavior analysts streaming into our field. So thank you. And it was a pleasure to speak with both of you. Well, thank, thank you very you. much. Yeah, it was our pleasure. And, um, you know, one of the joys of being a faculty member at a university is, is having the privilege of working with really amazing doctoral and master's level students who come into your office and say, hey, what about this? We've got an idea. And being able to work with them on, you know, formulating that idea into a really solid research question and doing the study. And uh, just, you know, it's one of the things that keeps me energized as a professional. Um, mm -hmm. And then having the opportunity to share it all with you is is really fun and a, a real honor. So thanks for asking us to do this. Thank you so much for being with us. I really enjoyed this conversation. What stood out to me the most is how immediately relevant these papers are for practicing behavior analysts, both new behavior analysts and those who are training young BCBAs. I highly encourage all of you to read the paper on self-determination. You can find links to all of these papers and more information about Drs. Peterson and Eldridge in our show notes. You can listen to our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. We always appreciate your reviews and ratings if you're so inclined. And if you have show ideas or a question for us, email us at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com or find us on Instagram or Facebook at at Autism Therapies. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next time. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.